This is John Steffling. This is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 88, double eight. Uh, with me in Long Island, New York, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Uh, in Japan, Johan Edebo. <laughs> Johan? Uh, in Toronto, the greater Toronto area, Corey Morningstar. Hi, Corey. Good morning, everyone. And um, in India, Varun Mathur. Hi, Varun. Hello. Uh, okay, so I think it's going on close to three weeks since the last time we did one of these. Uh, there's a number of things, as always, to talk about. I want to make a couple of introductory remarks, just things that that I've been meaning to say or touch on. Um, and then I want to talk about the new travel restrictions that are sort of flying under the radar, but being implemented at least um, in the EU. Uh, but a couple of things. Aesthetic resistance is free. We don't monetize our content. There's no, just, you just get to listen to it. I have never monetized any of my writing, except for, you know, I guess when I worked in Hollywood. Uh, but, but I never consider that my own work, actually. Uh, and and I, there, it's one of these things I don't fully understand. When I complain about it, I say, here we have this anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, leftist, but to read him, I have to access a paywall, or sometimes I get some of the content, but to access the exclusive content or some shit, I have to pay, you know, $7 a month or some absurd pittance. And, um, and I just, it is just something, there's a cognitive dissonance for me with this. If, if you're anti-capitalist, if you're against the system, you should want as many people as possible to read your work, especially people with no money, uh, because you should be working toward a, a, a change in the system, uh, not participating in the system. Now, people argue with me about this, and they will say, but writers deserve to be paid for their work. Yes, of course they do, but, but this, isn't, this is not that kind of work. Uh, if, if I write for Hollywood, yeah, I expect to be paid because I wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Uh, I wouldn't write Buffy the Vampire Slayer for free. Uh, but 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 this is not that. This is protest, uh, polemical, informative stuff. I want people to know the truth about U.S. NATO in Ukraine. I want people to know the truth about the Great Reset and on and on and on. I don't want to limit the audience to this material because it seems it seems like you're you're shooting yourself in your ideological foot, as it were. Okay, that's all I wanted to say on that. The other thing is aliases. I think it's very odd when people use aliases. I, I, I never have, and this is, I'm not trying to congratulate myself here, but, but 
I, I find it odd. I just find it odd. If you want, if you're proud of what you write, I think people should know it's you. Okay, Corey Morningstar. Hi, Corey. Hi. Um, I just wanted to add that wrong kind of green has always been free. We don't do any kind of ads or nothing. Um, our account on YouTube that we don't, there's just a few videos on there, not that many, but always free. We have one, might be on my own YouTube account, maybe not wrong kind of green. It's a Gloria Steinem video talking about being in the CIA. And um, it was on, I think, I don't know, some news channel actually long time ago and I found that somehow came across it and it has over a hundred thousand views I think and still no no ads on there no money making so I just wanted to add that and thank actually I wanted to thank Forrest Palmer who I used to work with a lot I'm wrong kind of green he's has always paid for the website out of his own pocket from his slave job and he continues to do that so I just wanted to say that I, I'm a firm believer in knowledge for everyone, especially since the work is in solidarity with the Global South. You know, I think it's important that exactly. people can access it. So I, yeah, yeah I believe that that's a problem, you know, the, yeah, and especially too, the internet's presented as like this, you know, oh, information for all, you know, knowledge for everyone. Well, you can see the writing on the wall that eventually yeah. everything will be only if you have money. Right. Yeah. Well, everything is is being monetized. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're against the monetizing, the commodification of everything, you should start with yourself, presumably. Johan, and then Hiroyuki. Yeah, on what you you guys just said on on the commodification of information and the failure of the internet, sort of sort of. Corey, before the pod, you. You mentioned how the internet sort of has killed the alternative alternative press, killed off the, I'm not sure how you phrased it, but killed off the proliferation of dissent, which I think that's kind of remarkable because we all remember what the internet used to be years ago and how it was advertised. The actual potential, I think, it, it held. And, and something in relation to this struck me yesterday, I think, because I, I reposted this, this paraphrase work by C.S. Lewis, which was a perfectly reasonable and relevant paraphrase, and it got axed by the algorithm for potentially being a, a misattribution. Uh, <clears throat> and this, this also, you know, drops your social credit scores, because if you get lots of these, your posts get downranked in, in the feed of others. But uh, a friend of ours also had, had a similar experience where this, this image macro of his was uh, shot down because it possibly could be associated with, with an unorthodox perspective on an influential scientific hypothesis. So, so this, this I think is significant because now we have this censorship machine that arbitrarily suppresses legitimate factual statements because they potentially could be used in contravention of, of some dominant orthodoxy. And this kind of means that, that nothing is sacred because you have no stable framework of value and no real immutable theoretical orthodoxy. And I think this is part of why these last years have seen such a, a rapid and violent repression of dissent. Because if I ask all of you, the situation where we have like arbitrary suppression of innocuous facts because they can be associated with problematic perspectives, what do you guys think happened when this is instituted? Um, yeah, I have a long answer, but let me, Hiroyuki, 
No, I just wanted to. I just wanted to make sure people know that um, people can donate. You know, John has a donation thing at his blog uh, site, and uh, Corey has a Patreon site. And uh, you, you know, we're not like independently uh, rich or anything. And money <laughs> is, you know, key at some places, mm -hmm. and it is necessary. And I'm sure there are people um, across the globe, uh, some <laughs> uh, who would like to contribute in some ways to what we do. And um, if that's the case, uh, they can totally donate and we appreciate Yeah, it. thanks. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, and I wanna thank the people that have donated. I mean, I do get donations, uh, not many, but, uh, but but pretty regularly, small donations. I've never gotten a really big donation, but uh, and I appreciate that because this is not free. I mean, SoundCloud is not free, Zoom is not free. None of this stuff is free, uh, and and you have to pay to store the podcast on SoundCloud and on and on and on. And and I just pay that out of my pocket. It's not prohibitive, but. Uh, so yes, donations are are very welcome and, and appreciated. Um, the the this the question that Johan asked is is yeah, it's very interesting and and I think extraordinarily complicated though in a way. I mean, during the Vietnam War, there was a massive anti-war movement. There is no anti-war movement today, and there was a thriving, uh, extraordinary alternative press. This is pre-internet. Uh, so mostly these were free newspapers, the Detroit Free Press, the Village Voice, the Berkeley Barb, I think it was called, the LA Free Press, and on and on. And they were remarkable. There were terrific people writing for them, people that later went on to have rather illustrious careers, but uh, very, very high quality writing, radical Marxist thinking, uh, radical perspectives. They were socialists, communists, anarchists, and they were united as anti-imperialists and, and voicing a strenuous anti-war sentiment and if those papers were free, you could get them free. They were everywhere. Every, all those operations functioned on a shoestring, but they got the paper out. And of course, there were, I think people like R. Crumb were making, drawing cartoons in some of them, people like that. There were artists and all kinds of people participating. That is all gone, needless to say. There is nothing equivalent on the internet. And those of us who, everybody on this podcast, I think, pretty much is shadow banned on, on social media platforms, if not outright outlawed these days. Uh, so sometimes it's very hard for people to find uh, any of the writing of, that Corey does or Hiroyuki does in the room, Johan. Uh, it's, 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 
as Corey said, the internet has served essentially to to subsume dissent somehow. I think people forget how controlled the system is. Uh, It's not like you can just put up anything you want. I mean, stuff is censored all the time and censorship is increasing all the time. and this segues a little bit because I want to get to this, but if anybody has, but but they're related topics. Uh, here in Europe, there are new travel restrictions, and I forget what it's called, E I T N or something, ITAS or E I T A S or something. Ostensibly, this is for. Uh, visa exempt countries if you want to enter the EU. And what is required, and it differs from country to country slightly, but what is required is that you provide your criminal record if you have one, uh, your banking history, your work history, your medical records, and in some places you have to be fingerprinted. The UK, I know, requires fingerprints on site. This is extraordinary, and I have not read anywhere uh, objections to this from anybody. It just has passed under the radar. It is is being justified as a security measure from all those terrorists that come from visa-exempt countries, I guess, like, I don't know, Paraguay. Uh, it's, it's, it's remarkable because it is the next brick in this massive security surveillance state that is being built globally. And it is incredible to me that you have to provide a work record. What is the criteria that will be applied to that? Yeah, I worked for six months at Burger King, you know, and then I got fired and, and I lived off my girlfriend the last couple of years. Is that okay? Can I come into your country? Well, apparently not now, <laughs> I guess. But I don't know what the criteria is. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know. Well, it's, it's not just that. I think I'm just going to add something here really quick because I was yeah, once yeah, I'd, I'd applied for a Schengen visa to come to Europe. And um, of course, they ask for bank statements and work history and um, security deposits and an invitation from somebody from Europe, where from the country that I'm visiting and so on. Yeah, you know, itineraries and plane bookings and hotel bookings and all of that. But I had pro- obviously provided my passport and my driving license, and they refused my visa on the basis that. They could not be sure whether my identity documents were original and true, right? Yeah. And this is after getting a new passport with biometrics, like iris scans and fingerprints and all of that. So it's not just about security. I think it's more about having the establishment, having the discretion of allowing who they want to travel and who they don't want. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, of course, it's not about no. security. I mean, of course, no, I no, implied it was yeah. about security. No, it's not about no, security. Not at all. And it's in the sense that it's more like if I am going to invest in some sort of industrial farm, let's say, in 
Spain, for example, I have I can put down a five hundred thousand dollar deposit, and I can get a visa the same day for one year, right? Yeah, or I can get a residency permit. So in that sense, artists are going to have a harder time. Creative people are going to have a harder time. People who are not subscribing to the establishment narrative are going to have a very difficult time. Like yeah. the example that you gave, man. So yeah. Let me just add, and then Johan Hiroyuki. Let me just add that that one of the reasons I wanted to mention this was that accompanying the announcement of this new uh, whatever travel control uh, that's being introduced were several articles. One in the New Yorker, which is a a, a prestige publication about how travel brings out the worst, the worst version of yourself is, is found when you travel and that maybe you just shouldn't travel. Uh, and it was a, a polemical assault on the idea of tourism and traveling. Now, everybody's aware how, how awful tourists can be and that the tourist industry is exploitive and horrific and, and environmentally degrading and there's lots, but that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, and and this, is, this is part of a, a propaganda campaign, a marketing campaign to discourage subordinate classes from traveling because trust me, private jets will not decrease in numbers of flights. They are not going to have a problem traveling and uh, uh, probably nobody will ask anybody on a private jet for their work history, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah. Johan, and then here you can. Sure, just to comment on, on Varun's experiences here, which are horrifying, but, but I think the, the, this arbitrary arbitrariness of the implementation of security measures is key here and it connects back to to what i wanted to say earlier just to, to reiterate i mean you, you can now get censored for for posting a, a picture of weather reports from the 90s and compare them to, to yesterday's and, and this means that we have this capricious discursive context where, where statements of actually non-controversial innocent facts may be suppressed and can actually lead to your persecution if these factual statements can possibly be used in a critique of the orthodoxy. So you're not actually questioning anything, you're not putting forth an alternative hypothesis or anything like that, but you're making an observation such that Russia had nothing to gain from blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, let's say. And right. I, I think this is something incredibly pernicious in the broader social environment, because I think this conditions us towards this, this sort of blank check of submission under authority, because it's not really connected to any set of prohibited narratives or, or actual orthodoxy or theoretical statements or whatever, because the censorship and repression, they're arbitrary and in a, in a sense, they're empty to be filled with whatever power needs. And I think that's key to, to your experience as well as this development. Yeah. 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 Well, it's no, also, it's, I mean, it, it kind of goes like, it's like the second step after the security measures after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Now it's being applied to everything else, right? Like it's not right. just airports, it's everything else now. Well, I, look, there, the, the, the shoe bomber, the famous shoe bomber, uh, who was a mentally handicapped guy that tried to set fire to his Nikes, 
uh, and he had like a firecracker's worst of explosives in his heel. There was no chance it was going to, it was preposterous. He may or may not have been some kind of psyop, but uh, that was it. Nobody else has ever tried to turn their shoes into a bomb or a weapon of any sort. And yet, if you go to any airport today, you are, are randomly, you may be randomly selected to take off your shoes and have them inspected and x-rayed. And this is what, 20 some years after that? Yeah. Uh, they, don't, they don't roll back this shit once it's in place. It never gets rolled back. Um, Hiroyuki? Well, I just think uh, it, it should be emphasized that the, uh, the 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 whole thing about the censorship and um, uh, repression and all that 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 uh, uh, that seem to be uh, exacerbating has been here, like Rick uh, Barun uh, is saying about uh, how difficult it is for him to get access to Europe from India. That's I'm I'm sure that's been here and um, stuff about. Uh, um, well, 60s, uh, 70s, uh, things might have been different, but at the same time, like I was listening to uh, uh, Chairman O'Malley's uh, program uh, last Sunday, or the one before, he was talking about how civil rights movement was uh, shaped by the uh, establishment. Um, in order to uh, re replace the uh, the whole revolutionary uh, momentum uh, that was there, and uh, the way they did was basically well, he was involved in uh, voting rights uh, uh, aside from all the other things, and uh, by the time um, he got it through, and uh, you can vote then there were nobody. They killed everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I mean, they jailed everyone. And uh, so there was a, a intentional, uh, very strict repression happening to certain segment of the population. And uh, that's been here. And uh, it's just been expanding probably because of... Uh, because, because of partly because of the uh, the internet, people more people know about things. Maybe um, not completely, but we hear about things, and uh, so shadow banning people, censorship uh, systematically, structurally through internet uh, media, uh, that's very effective, and it's probably necessary to uh, keep it going. I think so. I think it's important to see the, the um, change uh, as the part of the uh, uh, what's been going on. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Corey. Mm, well, just because you mentioned the shoe bomber, I just thought I'd throw in that, um, what's his name, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber in um, the U.S. He he passed away this month. Yes. I so I've been, I think I, I'm going to try to read this week his manifesto. I mean, I've read part little sections of it and that, but I haven't really sat down and given it the time and read the whole thing. So I want to do that. And I was just thinking how, you know, people 
you know, largely would be shamed for even reading it and that, but it's ironic how someone like Obama, you know, Bush, um, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, they can kill, you know, literally hundreds of thousands, millions of people and people fawn over them, you know, read all their shit. And you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, uh, who was something of a genius and a prodigy, a math prodigy, and when was enrolled at Harvard at the age of 16, uh, became a, a victim of MKUltra, the, the CIA program. And you can read about it. There's a number of articles out uh, that, that detail the abuse and torture that Kaczynski, I mean, essentially the CIA created Ted Kaczynski as the Unabomber. That was not the path he would have taken in life otherwise. It's just sadistic and, and tragic, the whole, the whole narrative. Um, and his manifesto is in places, I mean, amid the madness, because that's there too, um, there, is, there is genius uh, and, and prescience poking through. Uh, Varun? Well, I think I mean, there's also this narrative which has been building, I think, is that everybody is guilty until proven innocent by the establishment. I think that is something that is taking place very slowly right in the background, but it's, it's how everything has to be now filtered through the establishment filters, right? Yeah. That's the censorship. Every, they will decide what can be posted on social media. They can decide who, has, who can travel where and for what reason. But on the other hand, like the comparison, let's say, of those five, I think, five billionaires who built their own submarine that sank mm-hmm. when they were looking for the Titanic. That's, That's in, a in the, weird story, I guess. It's say. such a weird, and also, man, like they had a PlayStation joystick that was, they bought for like some $200. That's <laughs> the funny part. But the thing is that, and the same time, there was a, there was a boat, there was a trawler full of, I think, a thousand migrants that sank in the Mediterranean. And there yeah, has been no Greece, news about I think, yeah. 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 So the thing is that it's about it's like when they say that money talks, it's literally it's just that it's that if you have the money, you can get away with anything. You will be talked about. Everything will be um, acknowledged and taken in a positive light. And so and if you don't have it, then there is something wrong with you. <laughs> it's just, it's well, just but I unbelievable think this, how that works. Yeah, no, I, and I, I I've been working on a yeah. blog post, actually, that will be out in a couple of days, and, and this is a, a one of the secondary themes in it or topics in it. Uh, and and the the privileged class has always had rights that that the underclass and working class and so forth has has never had. Um, in the United States. Uh, the everybody knew this that if you were rich you could buy your way out of prison for example there's no rich people uh, in, in any prison in America I don't think and everybody knew this but it was not but and it was seen as as unfair and and something that that one should correct if one had a conscience and so forth. 
There was also the presumption that better a hundred guilty people be set free than one guilty man be sent to prison. All of those things have changed now. I think, I mean, there, it's paradoxical, but I think that in general, the conditioning, the message to the public via mainstream media, electronic media has been that, uh, that, that wealth is a virtue, that the rich must know more than you or I know. That's why they're rich, that poor people shouldn't be listened to. And working class voices have all but been expunged from, from media. There are no more working class writers in Hollywood, no more working class directors. And of course, everybody knows the whole Nepo baby um, mem now, but it's true. So, so the contraction of media ownership and media control has been acute, and it's a it's a subject that that the people who own media would rather you didn't know about. So it's it's hardly publicized. But that contraction happened in in I think. 1996 and again 2003 I forget I mentioned this in my speech at the in Stockholm at that doctor's call yeah yeah uh, uh, that, that it was Colin Powell's son who was head of the FCC at that time and he just sold out corporations and deregulated everything and there was a massive consolidation of ownership so you went from something like a few hundred radio stations uh, I mean, a few hundred owners of radio stations to like six, all radio stations in America are owned by six corporations. And it may be fewer now, in fact. So, <clears throat> so this consolidation of power in, in media in marketing and, and the crossover between Madison Avenue and Washington is, is much more open, much more sophisticated today, more effective and there is a uniformity of message in, in certainly relating to political topics and social topics than ever before. And hence, uh, I think part of the reason there is so little protest to these things is that a lot of people have internalized the propaganda over the last 25 years. They've right. come to believe that, geez, maybe it is a security message that, you know, I don't know. Um, Corey? Um, well, up to this year from 2014, what Varun was speaking about, the death of migrants in the Mediterranean Sea has surpassed, I believe it's around 27,000. So, wow. So there's this thing, it's like climate, it's like everything else, you will care about what we tell you to care about, right? Yep. And then this weird fetish fascination with celebrity and, and people with wealth. And um, that's, you know, largely what's really, really changed, you know, whereas before people would have recognized this and, you know, like we say, you know, sort of fuck the man, that type of thing now. Right. There's this fascination and subservience and overall domestication. Um, it's fascinating, really, and at the same time, terrifying. Um, <clears throat> how indoctrinated 
all yeah, society yeah. society has become you know where there's this complete lapse of critical thinking and um i i got a an yeah. email from a, a friend of mine apropos of that in Los Angeles the other day, and he was just making observations about a number of things. But one of the things he mentioned was how shocking, how extreme the smearing of Robert Kennedy Jr. has been. Now, whatever you think of RFK Jr., that's a separate topic uh, and a complicated one, I think. But and I knew he was going to be attacked. I'm sure he knew he was going to be attacked. Uh, my friend's description of it was pretty amusing. And he said, you cannot, now this is a guy who works in Hollywood and uh, as a writer and he, and he knows a lot of famous people and, and liberal Hollywood, West Side liberals and so forth. And he's a great guy, but, and he's not really part of that. But, but he said, you can't utter a, a syllable in defense of Kennedy without being attacked. He said, it's just, it's just like, it's like a lynch mob. Uh, it is reflexive and exaggerated that people, like you're a conspiracy theorist. What are you, an anti-vaxxer nutcase, flat earther? What's wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Johan? Your mic, Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so this kind of connects um, my, my earlier observations. Uh, this is what you guys just said, because, because I think if, if you have this like capricious discursive environment where nobody is safe, nobody can be, everybody can be persecuted for, for stating basic observations. I think that many of us will be pushed towards assuming this thought police role because there's no basic safety in just aping or adhering to the orthodoxy since it can shift at the drop of a, of a pin, but the active participation in the apparatus of repression at least will provide some sense of safety and security. So when you and I are conditioned to just obey rather than only adhere to, adhere to any theory or specific perspectives, it seems to me that, that more people than otherwise will be enticed to, to seek safety and taking part in this intimidation of dissidents and of the, the socially constructed other. And just an observation from last week, I think I, I can see this in, in what I think is an incredi incredible reaction to this alleged Wagner rebellion in, in Russia, because people in my feed were positively you know, salivating over the potential of civil war in Russia. It was, it was all over my feed during these days. So, so I mean, let's just call them self-identified liberal system loyalists. And they were so happy about this incredible and exciting time where you know, millions of people would, would perish and get displaced in a bloody civil war. So, so yeah, I, I mean, the hypocrisy of it. Yeah, the yeah that's, a, that's a good point. And, and I wanted to mention something apropos of that. And it's a bunch uh, of people uh, dying uh, in Ukraine too already. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's you know, People don't see it, you know. It's no, and, crazy. and but I, uh, the 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 point I wanted to make was that uh, even among leftists, pseudo left, whatever you want to call them, certainly among liberals, there I have been surprised at the the Rusif the extent of the Russophobia. I expected in media, MSNBC, 
I have not expected it from many leftists, even people who are critical of US imperialism, who recognize that this whole thing was fomented by US NATO, the expansion of NATO East were all the provocations of Russia. They are well aware of that. They, they will write about it even. And yet there always leaks into their commentary uh, this strange, it's, for, uh, it's a form of Orientalism. It's a kind of condescension to Russian culture, Russian history, Russian people. And, uh, uh, and this is even among people who are on the right side of this conflict in, in large measure anyway. And there is always a, a tacit, if not overt, tone of, of uh, insult, I guess, for lack of a better word, of Putin. Nobody ever says an, a, anything about Putin that is not just strictly negative, it, it, just 100% negative. And it's interesting because I don't see this same level of animosity when people talk about China or Xi, uh, I don't even see it with North Korea, frankly. Russia occupies a special place in the Western unconscious. And uh, it may have to do simply with, with communism, with the fact it was the Soviet Union, and that struck such fear in the minds of Western liberals for a century. I don't know, but it is extraordinary so that response, Johan, doesn't surprise me in the least. I have to say it's, it's because I see it among people I respect and I'm saddened by that. Um, Corey, and then Harold, you think? Yeah, like nothing really new, but again, like the whole internet seems to bring out and almost nurture the worst aspects of humanity, especially in the Western world, like, you know, virtual lynch mobs and virtual witch hunts and people, because people can hide behind their screen and hide behind names, right? Like we, you use your real name, I use your real name, I think we all do, but a lot of people don't. And in person, I think a lot of this stuff would not develop and would not be taking place. I mean, in person, you have to treat each other with a certain degree of respect you know, and listen to one another. And I don't think, I don't think you get that viciousness that you I get. I think that's a great point. I think yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it always amazes. I mean, clearly social media triggers people. Uh, it happens to me. It's a, it's a, I don't know, it's built into the, the structure of, of social media platforms, but people kind of flame out and go into rages all the time. And especially men, but not exclusively men. There is a kind of white male uh, aggro that comes out, and and it's it it sounds like schoolyard bullies. And you think, you, know, you dumb fucker, you're on the internet. I don't even know who you are. You don't even know who I am. What it, you know? This is this is just crazy behavior. It is. It's literally insane behavior. Um, but but yeah, people get very excised. It's a form of um, it's like road rage on the information highway. How about that one? Okay, um, Harold Yuki. 
Yeah, we, I, but it's a pattern, though. I mean, it, we went through the same thing with uh, Syria and Libya. Uh, I clearly, you know, remembered um, people you would uh, think would be speaking with uh, objective mind would say things that are unbelievable. You know, like I remember uh, reading an article by Chris Hedges, uh, talking about Middle East, uh, how corrupt, how hopeless, how um, uh, unsavable uh, when, you know, they were being attacked. Uh, yeah. um, you know, the Chomsky did the same thing. So there has been this um, uh, imperialists among the uh, so-called leftists who have uh, occupied huge uh, space uh, in the name of being left. And th this has been going on for a long time. And I guess um, Russia is bigger and there's a threat of nuclear war, which the US I'm sure wants to um, utilize if it can. So, um, it is uh it is it is a problem it is a and it is a, a part of the uh, larger uh problem of uh anti socialism anti communism uh yeah you know there's a, I'll post I'll post in the links to this podcast the old Michael Parenti uh article on left anti communism i think it's still available at global research i'm not sure but somebody mentioned, it was James Chambers actually, Fergie Chambers, mentioned the other day on social media uh, how the, the destructive influence of publications like Jacobin, uh, erstwhile leftist, slick, glossy, you know, impressively put together, uh, marketed well, bankrolled clearly, uh, and yet they are deeply reactionary. They are deeply anti-socialist, anti-communist. And I couldn't agree more. And, but, but they're not alone. There, there are all of these guys out there at Gabriel Rockhill and, and now the people at Counterpunch, Eric Dreister. These people are, are not anti-imperialists. They're not, they, they call themselves that. It's the old Zizek thing, you know, like, as a Stalinist, I believe in free market capitalism. It, it's that kind of, of uh, sleight of hand that goes on all the time. And I find, I mentioned these people by name this time because I've just, I've just had it. I don't, you know, at my age, what do I care? Uh, and what are they gonna do to me anyway? But because I find it so offensive and harmful and insidious and, uh, a problem. So uh, I just wanted to say that it is, it is, there is a, an enormous number of these kind of voices out there that purport to a kind of radical dissent, anti-capitalism, they're anti-war theoretically, and yet all this stuff creeps into their critiques that contradicts that. Um, Varun? And then Corey? I mean, going further from what you're saying, I think it's also this, and we've discussed this on the group, I think it's also this addiction to neoliberal capitalism. 
it's impossible for individuals to convince themselves to give it up for the benefit of society. Yeah. How do you do that? Because so in 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 that sense, it's great to talk about it theoretically, right? Like so, Zizek can write about it. All these people that you name, they can write about it a lot. Their lifestyles are not going to take a beating. Nobody's yeah. lifestyle is going to take a beating, right? So, and in terms of in terms of this kind of hyper-real structure of the simulation, then all the conversation is happening within the spectacle. It is never going to get translated into lived experience, right? So they might want to defend or berate the Middle East, but the war economy is going to still live, outlive what they have written or not written, and so on and so forth, right? So, <clears throat> so in that sense that if there was going to be a conversion of the individual lived experience and therefore the community lived experience, then a lot of different decisions on a personal level would have to get made. And those are decisions yeah. that are that are inaccessible largely. And I think that is what the reason for this kind of social media frustration and violence is, is because there has been a massive othering because of the screen. So now there is no shared experience of the world. Now there's only isolated experiences of the world and therefore there can never be, if, if the internet is the only place where you're going to negotiate this, then there can never be a solution to it, right? Yeah, but there, and I see everybody's hand is up. So I'm just going to read one sentence because in this new post that I'm working on, uh, it's a quote from uh, Jonathan Beller, uh, very one sentence quote what is encoded in the basic structure of the photographic apparatus feeds back into the social to reorganize and reproduce it close quote now you could substitute for photographic apparatus digital media social media the internet and you if the the, the message the, would be the same, except probably more acute, actually. Mm. This is what's more complicated about it, uh, that, that, that we are not, those of us on this podcast are not outside this, this media ecology, as it were. Yeah. And we are shaped by it too, and we can't yeah. escape it. Uh, it's, and that's in a certain sense, what's, what's terrifying about it. There is this, it is dialectical and, and you are constantly uh, caught in that, uh, Adorno writes about this, the, and this is in the post of this sort of sacrificial mechanism, which becomes an exchange value and substitution and so forth. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not easy to talk about. It's very complicated to talk about, but that complexity needs it needs to be talked about that way, or you end up reductively uh, distorting what's happening. And I think this is a really great topic. And I think what you say is absolutely true, Maru. Um, Corey? Mm, it just strikes me what Harry um a couple of terms he used, imperial leftist, um, anti-communist leftist, how that reminded me of something we spoke about earlier in the week, just privately, the term luxury vinyl. And, and again, like marketed, same thing, marketed, bankrolled, offensive, harmful, insidious, right? And um, yep. I, it's hard to believe how susceptible people are to that. Like how, how can you believe that phrase even, 
you know, again, luxury vinyl. And that's how that, that other, I'm, I don't know if I'm articulating this right for people to no, understand. No, but you are, and no, it's a really, it's a, it's a great observation. Let me just, let me contextualize it for a moment so everybody can, Corey was talking about finding an apartment, a house for somebody and, and the person choosing this house that had, so the developer described it, luxury vinyl floors. And we were laughing about this, right? <clears throat> but I recently, here with my wife, we'd be thinking about extending the house because the kids are getting too big. And <clears throat> we went to a, a flooring specialist and I said, I, we probably can't afford this, but it would be nice to have real hardwood floors. And he was like, yeah, yeah, nobody does that anymore. Here's beautiful parquet floors. And there's a laminate floor. These, you can't tell the difference. You know, and this is much more popular right now. And I said, but I can tell the difference. No, no, look, it looks just like real. <laughs> and I finally started losing it. And I said, but, you know, I, I can tell that a thousand times out of a thousand times, you bring me into a house, I can tell you if it's a real wood floor or if it's parquet. And he said, well, another really great factor for the parquet is like on real wood floors, you can hear footsteps everywhere. And I thought, I want to hear footsteps. That's life, you know? But this is the example. It, every, every flooring place I went, they virtually never put in real wood floors anymore. Almost nobody asks for it. Like half of 1% of people ask for it. That's, that's marketing. So that you end up with people thinking luxury vinyl, that sounds wonderful. Uh, never mind it's plastic poison, a petrochemical product. Never mind, it doesn't matter. Hiroyuki? Oh, I just wanted to add that the uh, on the uh, imperial left, I um, it really should be said that this is really a basic, basic thing, and uh, the, the the idea that there is bigger issue that should be concerned, and the small details are definitely uh, necessary, but that should not get in the way of taking care of the bigger issue. And uh, Mao Zedong uh, wrote about it on, uh, on contradiction. And uh, that was really, really uh, revealing uh, document. Uh, it was written long time ago in different context, but it totally talks about the same thing. And it lays out all the elements. And it's, it's a very interesting, uh, material uh, to look at uh, today for those who are wondering about um, how it works and how it was and how it is today. That just I, I wanted to add. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a good point. The 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 level of anti-communist anti-communism in in Western society is is really is really profound. Uh, you can't find very many people who will even use the term communism. You have all these, you know, the very popular conflation of communism with fascism. 
oh, they come from the same place, you know. Uh, and and there are very popular bloggers, internet personalities, whatever you want to think, influencers, leftist influencers, uh, who who use that conflation all the time. We'll talk about it. They, they, they tend to like the word totalitarian a lot, which is kind of a CIA word. But this is, uh, this is why, it's all in my current blog post, so I'm not gonna go on about it, but it's why I find Adorno so extraordinarily important to read. And he's very hard, I know, and he's very dense. It's not like reading Stephen King, but, uh, but, but it's worth it's worth pouring through to start because I just want to keep emphasizing there are these deeper mechanisms the way ideology is reproduced I, a couple of blog posts back was quoting Althusser a lot he has a great summation of this it's this is this is what's important to understand and and without it. Uh, you arrive at, at a lot of a lot of writers, people who I think are are mostly very good and useful, who I support, but they fail in their conclusions because they're anti-Marxist and and they're not dialectical in their thinking, and they um, they are prey to this the final bastion of 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 Western um, intellectual privilege as it were. And, and that is that is anti-communism. Anyway, okay. Uh, other uh, topics that, that people wanted to, I don't know how long we've been doing this here today, but um, Corey, anything else? Um, sure. I wanted to talk about, um, just touch upon climate solutions like right now with all the fires, the forest fires in Canada, um, they're really now, just how they use things that are happening to further their agendas, which we all know. So now with the climate, you have all their climate, you know, quote unquote solutions in the wings that we need. Um, it's all, you know, emerging markets with the quote unquote pandemic, you had the big pharma and their biotech and all you know, you have all the synthetic food, all these solutions that are not solutions at all, but will make things way worse. And I wanted to touch upon um, a distinction that I think should be made between the climate solutions for the working class, um, how they disempower and cost money and even livelihoods. Um, this is what I was thinking about, about the pizza ovens in New York, right? Oh, I'm going yeah. after the small business and then how climate solutions, quote unquote, for the corporate class and ruling class and global finance further empower um, actually unprecedented power and they make money and loads and loads of money. So there's a huge difference in climate solutions for the working class, right? Um, normal people and then climate solutions for the other, the, the wealthy. Yeah. And I want yeah. to make that distinction and just how now cloud seeding, right? Is now becoming mainstream spoken about you know, in the mainstream, it's not conspiracy theory anymore. And that will lead to all now we can normalize geoengineering of the climate, all this stuff becomes normalized. Um, they in it, they, what do you call it, like, they basically 
um, they enter it into the foray of the, of the mind and the masses through these emergencies, right? So for yeah, every emergency, yeah, yeah. then then they, um, you know, and enters all these things that they have waiting and then they become normalized and then they can start talking about it openly. They're no longer conspiracies, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I can open that up maybe to people to comment. Brune or Haruki and Johan. Yeah, I think it's it's really important that you've been pointing out about the uh, specifics on how so-called climate issue is approached by the uh, industries. And uh, uh, by doing so, you would realize that this is not a solution for the people. It's solution for the establishment. So it's um uh I, I think it's it's really important that people uh would look at uh, what Corey has been saying um um yeah yeah well the the other part of that this has of course always been a tendency in in a class society in western society and you see it there is a moral dimension to this as well. The, the attack on tobacco is part of, of, of removing small pleasures from the working class, removing any pleasure from the working class. Uh, cigarettes were bad, but that's because corporations put poisons into them to enhance the addictive quality and so forth. But for the underclass, for the working class, those highly caffeinated coffee, snooze, chew, cigars, all of it, these, these are things that help you get through the day and lessen your fatigue and help you survive an onerous alienated labor that you are, are coercively forced into. Uh, those things always get taxed more than anything else. Uh, uh, here in Norway, you can't legally bring any tobacco into the country because the tax is exorbitant, insane, uh, like a thousand percent or something. There's no tax on alcohol or very little, but that's because the ruling class likes their martinis, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, there's of course a double standard to all of this. There's always a double standard. And, and uh, the pizza oven thing, during the COVID lockdowns, it was a retail apocalypse for mom and pop businesses, single family businesses. They shuddered never to reopen or they were bought out by big chain stores. And now I'm pretty sure that if these small, pizza places that many who have been there for a very long time, decades and decades, if they are forced to close, they will probably be bought out by Domino's or somebody and uh, whatever the big pizza chains are. And that's that, that uniformity will become a global thing. You'll be able to get the same food wherever you go on the planet if you're one of the, one of the underclass. Varun? Oh, your mic, Varun. Mike Varun, you guys, you can leave your mics on. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. No, it's, it's also this, we, 
I think there was a meme going around the last few years about how the establishment destroys authentic diversity on the planet and replaces it with a manufactured diversity. And oh, yes. so that, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure everybody's seen it, yeah. but it's just this idea that, that natural difference cannot be allowed to exist, but only, I, mean, I think, I mean, that kind of does something to the natural trajectory of culture in general, of language, of art, of music. And this, like you were saying, this kind of homogenization project has been on for many decades. But now I think it's come to a point where people are never, not even going to realize that they can talk about it because they are now so fixed in this identity structure of this kind of personality cult that has been given birth to by the corporatocracy that there is no longer any semblance of understanding that there is a homogeneity and a very, very base level. And there is actually, yeah. you know, that there is no authenticity left anymore in anything that is being represented. Corey? Yeah, yeah and then yeah. just imagine how difficult it's been for those small independent business owners to survive the past few years. And now they're being hit, oh, now you need to spend, you know, $30,000, $50,000, whatever it is on, um, what is it, um, some sort of device, right, carbon carbon cleanings, some sort of device that costs tens of thousands of dollars. How are they supposed to afford that? So further crush them, eradicate them, make them obsolete. And then yeah. to not talk about militarism, right? We won't talk about that. We'll focus on these small owners in uh, their pizza ovens. And we won't yeah. talk about yeah. millions and millions of leaf blowers that just blow a leaf from the street over there. And we'll just keep those all, you know, and we, we won't look at that. I mean, it just, oh, we won't talk about drive-throughs, right? People sitting on their ass waiting for Big Mac, right? We'll just focus on these small individual um, business owners that, that have struggled to survive. No, we, nor will we, we talk about the packaging industry, right? Oh, plastics, fucking plastics, yeah, plastic. plastics. Everything plastics. is wrapped in plastic, everything. And it never gets mentioned. Packaging is a very, very big business, one of the biggest in the world. And, and what's plastic made from? Oil. Right? oil. Oil. Everyone's like, oh, bad oil, bad oil. Plastic is fucking oil, people. Like, sorry, <laughs> it just makes me crazy. But, yeah. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you a really good example of this. I made a, so I, I grew up in a, in a sort of government setup because my parents were accredited with the Press Information Bureau. So we had government accommodation. And the market close to our house was a very small neighborhood market, which had maybe a baker, you know, like a dairy, some clothes shops, a few kind of old school restaurants and things like that. All the grocers used to stock rice and lentils and beans in sacks. And they used to weigh them out and pour them into like paper bags and give them to us, right? <laughs> That's how we grew up. But now, and this is a question that I ask everybody who is harping on about Greta and the environment and climate and all of this, I ask them to count every single object that's in their kitchen, which has not been wrapped in plastic. And it's impossible to buy anything in the market which is not wrapped in plastic. It's Absolutely impossible. impossible. Right? Impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, all this kind of like the, and the, it's very reflective of how policy works because 
there will be this kind of enforcement of some needless policy about health and security and safety and so on and so forth. But it's actually preserving the business model of using plastic rather than giving a shit about, because everything that's plas- packaged in plastic is actually just full of chemicals, right? Like it's industrially yeah. farmed. It's not coming from small farms. It's not coming from neighborhood villages and so on and so forth. It's just all kind of industrial level and people yeah. can't even conceive how big these farms are and how much pesticide and shit is used to grow this stuff. So oh, I know. It's, it's so absurd. All of this is just really absurd, really. Um, Johan? Mike. Mike, <laughs> Johan. <laughs> Sorry. I thought about what you said earlier, Varun, about um, hyper-realism and this, uh, this impotence of the spectacle when it's disconnected from the real world. You know, now, notwithstanding advanced symbol politics and rhetorical stances against imperialism and what have you. And you mentioned how nobody is willing to pay the price, challenge the, the lifestyle. And at least we in the West think we can save the world through a comfortable consumer choice, you know. Uh, so, so nobody in the affluent West, in, in the heart of this imperial machinery, is taking any real risk. We have no skin in the game. And this brought my mind towards uh, Søren Kierkegaard and his, you know, somewhat attenuated, shall we say, view of a Christian faith. And to paraphrase him a little bit, his position is basically on faith that that it demands this absolute existential risk, this objective uncertainty. For for only then can the believer truly surrender himself, his attachments, his knowledge, and so on, and, and let him face the reality at hand nakedly. And I think there's an analogical situation we have here with the, the complacent and, and recuperated dissidents around us because nobody is willing to put their money where their mouth is. We have we have nothing of this real transformative radicalism that's actually ready to to, to sacrifice itself and the world at hand for the ideal it's, it's desiring to achieve. Well, I mean, but this is this is always this is always. Uh, this is always a question, and, and it's a question that people have asked me, and, and you're raising it here. And I, I don't have an answer, but I, other than presumably one can try to keep educating people, we are all powerless in a certain sense. The consolidation of power is... is uh, pretty total. The transference of wealth to the top one percent is total. They own the globe, and there is no winter palace to storm. There is no way to orchestrate a, a coup. And and this kind of deterritorialized uh, uh, model of of power, I guess, means that these questions run into a kind of wall because I think they are questions that are that are formed from a previous era somehow. I don't know what the current question is, but but I don't know what I I I think there's a I think there is something um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. There is something uh, 
problematic in suggesting that uh, one can do anything more than, than educate and organize at a grassroots level. I mean, I think you do that and you're going to have limited results. And beyond that, this, this becomes a very loaded question. I don't, I don't have an answer for it, but I think that people tend to start blaming the victim here because they, because they don't have an answer for it. And, and I don't have an answer for it. The, the, the power is very absolute right now on a certain level. And I think the biggest form of resistance, hence this podcast, is, is what we're doing. I, I, because I'm at a loss as to what else to do anymore. Uh, uh, but if others want to chime in on that, Varun? Well, well, that's, yeah. this, is, this is also quite symptomatic of how the transference of primary experience has moved online. I think that's very like what Johan you both mentioned is that now the primary interface is the internet. It's not community anymore, right? Because if it was right. community, then the conversations would be very different within grassroots, within communities, whether they're middle class or middle class, so on and so forth. But now, I mean, we are sitting in five different corners of the planet trying to figure out how to make a crack in this monster that has swallowed everybody, right? But yeah. we've all also mentioned how difficult it is to talk to our own communities about these subjects. And that's the problem, right? Is that, right? Yeah. Like that's, so that transferability, it doesn't exist anymore. And that's the, I think, something that I, don't, I really don't have an answer to, like you said. <clears throat> like well, I, th I think one thing, Hiro, and then Hiro Yuki, um, I think one thing is, is uh, that, that the idea the traditional aspect, the traditional concept of a mass movement, a majority movement, <clears throat> probably needs to be reformulated somehow. I have said before, I feel as though we are the keepers of some kind of truth, like Coptic monks in the desert in the third century, with you know living in caves and protecting the ancient texts, uh, because I because I and waiting for the solution to emerge. You know, uh, yeah. that that's the best I can come up with. Hiroyuki. Well, the, the the most obvious problem is that the uh, the we lack the value system that could uh, uh, move the social formation to beyond what the uh, capitalist system has been installing, mm. and um, without that, uh, when we talk about uh, we are powerless, but if we get together, we can do bigger things, but that bigger thing is already defined by the establishment. So um, yeah. we go beyond uh, the value system of the system and uh, somehow connect, somehow build momentum to go beyond. Uh, to really realize that this social formation is destructive uh, ultimately. And um, so, it, but how do we do that? That's well, a big, you, know. you know, I should, I should have my son on it, my eldest son, who's in his 40s now, um, is an activist in Southern California. And he works actually all over the United States. And he's been very effective. And I mean, 
his group made changes in the criminal justice system that helped people, objectively helped people's lives. It didn't change society, but it did change something. And so I don't want to suggest that that's nothing. It's not nothing. It's it's important. But uh, but but the system is extraordinarily adaptive, and uh, and they've become very good at, at that adaptation. Um, Corey. Yeah, I just wanted to add to what Hiroyuki said. The primary purpose of the climate quote unquote solutions is that of rescuing, saving, protecting, expanding the very capitalist system, right? That needs to be dismantled. I mean, that's the primary purpose of right. focusing on this climate and solutions. Yeah. Well, no, well, well right. plastics expand and all the other shit, right? That poisons our planet and ourselves while well, everything's, you know, um, destroyed. We're focused on climate, climate alone, erasing everything else in the biosphere and it's all to keep the system going right and climate means the the thermometer right 1.5 nobody cares again about the military the waste and polluting that the military causes the private jets none of that uh electric cars look look at look at the Look at the absurdity of electric cars, which are extraordinary. I mean, not sustainable and incredibly polluting. We're going to be stuck with a lot of very heavy batteries soon in landfills. Uh, that's not an answer to anything. But if if whoever the influencer of the moment is, uh, I saw Greta pimping for the US NATO war machine the other day. Uh, Whoever the influencer of the, of the moment is will will promote some probably identity based campaign to to make a better lifestyle choices anything rather than than grassroots organizing of any sort because that's the, that's the final frontier yeah. Can I add in right there, John? Please, please, yes. I, I read I read this little article snippet in the a local local mainstream media the other day and it was about four new um, electric vehicle battery plants that are popping up in southwestern Ontario and they have um, some First Nations getting involved in recycling, quote unquote, recycling this stuff if this is even possible. Anyway, 30 tons of EV battery manufacturing waste will be generated every day. 30 tons wow. of waste every single day in this for you know quote unquote green green vehicles clean yeah well green. the fact that oh not a solution the fact that the imperial state can be conducting a pointless war can have 900 military bases around the world that constantly pollute that the defense industry remains the largest industry in the world and has not slowed down at all. In fact, it expands every year. The fact that that can exist and barely get mentioned, and yet governments will implement policies to cut cow farts in and methane from cows is, is breathtaking. A hundred years from now, people will look at this and wonder how in the world this kind of absurdity 
was so sustainable for so long because yeah. it's madness. It's just madness. I don't, I don't know what to say at a certain point. I completely run out of words. Um, Varun? Yeah. Well, also, going forward from what Hiroyuki was saying about what kind of construction of a value system, it's also how do you convince somebody to care that deeply about the world which they have never seen or heard from? Right, like all of this is happening elsewhere while I'm posting pictures of my turmeric latte with my cat or whatever. So in the sense that it's it's always at a distance, right? Like there's this kind of barrage of filters that are present before I experience the real world. And yeah. my experience of the real world is largely negotiated by things that Corey has written about. Greta Thunberg is gonna take care of it, not me. Right. Like I have to I have to work to feed my family and so on and so forth. So so the establishment already has control about of the problem and the solution that we know, of course. But how do you like? I, I'm at a loss to think about how do you break that. It's only going to be conversations, one to one, continuously, nonstop, presenting people with different kinds of varied opinions, works, yeah. yours, Corey's, and so on and so forth. So that's something that that is the only thing that I can see <laughs> really. And then, well, I, other, yeah, no, go on. Other, I mean, I don't know. I think it's also other models of living that have to be explored at an individual family community level that has to be everybody will have to face that kind of onslaught of propaganda in lived experience every day which we do i think largely yeah right you can't keep going yeah. again um johan yeah so all of you all of you mentioned these these glaring contradictions of the system in our lives so, so i think there's this huge cognitive dissonance rumbling under the surface about these. And, and that was the case, you know, a hundred years ago as well, just after the First World War. So about the way forward from here, uh, I think we need to do something akin to what Dadaism attempted to do, which was also predicated upon these obvious contradictions coming to the surface. And we need to actually succeed. So I think we need new forms of, of communication, find these new forms, new, new modes of communication perhaps, that are nimble enough to evade the censorship structure and these tendencies towards authoritarian social formation. And we need these forms to, to, of communication to also link up with a renewed cultural substructure, this, this hands-on tangible form of life, of resurgent arts, crafts, culture, and also spirituality. That, that's, I, I think that's yeah. the much easier said than done, but I think that's that's it. Um, it also, <clears throat> also reminds me of like just really quick one quote because you brought up no, that please go and Tristan Zara had a had a quote mm -hmm. about fighting capitalism by sitting on his ass, which mm -hmm. has incidentally disappeared from it has been taken off Wikipedia completely. The Dada section of Wikipedia is is just bare bones. Like there's nothing there anymore about how movements can take place you know so. yeah I, I i perhaps i i have to think that that education and and philosophy and critical theory and art that these things reclaiming these fields and educating people to, to, to become an audience in a sense, a readership, a, a 
a public again, creating the preconditions for there to be a, a genuine mm. public out there. I think that is a, a, a tangible kind of goal, but, but it's not easy. I, the indoctrination is so acute in many people at the same time, at the same time, I always hasten to say this, uh, during the COVID lockdown, it seemed as if everybody had submitted and, and gone along with it. There was a, certainly a lynch mob out there, people pointing fingers at uh, the unvaccinated and all kinds of hysteria associated with, with criticism of, of the policies. You weren't allowed to do that. At the same time, though, I think a majority of humanity recognized the bullshit that were skeptical of it, didn't want it. A lot of people rejected it. There were protests all over the world. But these are people who are not, I've said this before many times, are not visible in media. They are, that's not an accident. They are intentionally not visible in media. And, and one, one thing I suppose to remember, if one wants to be at all optimistic is that Perhaps those are the people that become the new public. Those are the people that that somehow, what Johan said, the, the, if there's a if there's a nimble communication, a nimble, but the People's University, free, which will be free, uh, those people are the the baby steps toward uh, reclaiming mm -hmm. a commons, a public educated and independent thinking populace. That's certainly not what the ruling class wants. It's not what governments want, but the credibility of world government, the credibility of global NGOs and bureaucratic institutions of all sorts is at an all time low. People know these institutions are corrupt. It's, it's just a question of, of somehow mitigating the apathy that has been uh, taught to so many people today and so many young people. Look, the clinical depression is on the rise, suicide is on the rise, self-harm is on the rise. Something is not right. Those people, that's, those are the people that need to you know, throw away your Prozac and come study with us, you know, um, or learn, learn traditional farming methods and go learn crafts and and how to make your own whatever i don't care uh that's that's how you begin i suppose i don't know if it's even remotely possible but Corey. Mm, okay so speaking of young people and perception and sort of navigating through an insane society. I have just a couple little um, things I want to share. So my one, so my daughter's son, so my grandson, he's seven. And the last week he had food left over. He came, I see him pretty much every day. And so he came over, he had food left over um, from school, um, a lot of food. And he said he didn't have time to eat it because you're not allowed to eat outside. And he wanted to go outside and play. So he skipped his food and went outside and played. Then he told me that he was going to try um, the next day to sneak it out because he said it's not illegal yet to eat outside. So he's going to try to sneak it out and eat it the next day. And then he told me, then he added, but it probably will be soon. 
right? That probably soon wow. will be illegal to eat outside. And so I thought that was funny from a seven-year-old, right? Um, and then <laughs> his older cousin, his two years older, she, during the whole COVID thing, took it upon herself. She didn't want to use the hand sanitizer. And I don't know if people know this. In Canada alone, we had 300, maybe even more than 300, around 300 sanitizers recalled um, that were carcinogenic at the hospital. They had um, sanitizer making nurses sick. Anyway, it's really highly toxic. Children aren't even supposed to use it at all. And it's... Um, Anyway, she, they had to use hand sanitizer. I don't even know if people know their kids were using this shit every day because where it would sit on the desk, one school actually burned a hole through the floor where it was dripping. Um, yeah, so the, yeah. the kids had to use it every time they went, I don't know, like three, four times a day, they had to stand and line up and use this. And so she brought yeah. her own and she told me she filled it with water. So, you know, and, and cause she, she understood, right. That it's like, real tactics. it's yeah. just, it's the, um, you know, just the act, right. It, it was the virtue signaling, even in her young mind, she saw as long as it appeared that she was doing this, um, what would you call it? This, this thing, this, uh, this motion, whatever you want to call it, that she would, you know, be okay. No one's going to, she just had to appear that she was doing it you know, the odds, like whatever, like someone who doesn't believe in church or God, you know, praying with everyone, right. Going along. So she yeah. just filled it with water and went along. And I just thought it was interesting no, both being, being so young that they figured, you know, in their heads, they're figuring out how to circumvent the system basically. And so, yeah. and that's going to, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have predicted now for a while that there will be a, a massive underground kind of black market to all kinds of things it needs to be organized politically but i think <clears throat> i think that's going to happen i i there you the hand sanitizer thing is big here too kids were told when you get it and come into school you have to do it and go on and it was this stuff that was very strong disinfectant and, and um I, yeah, I told my kids, yeah, avoid it if you can. You don't have to do that. You're not going to get sick from this. You're essentially immune from it. Uh, no, but that's that's encouraging to hear. So, sure, maybe maybe there are uh, strategies that are built around that. And I again hope that part of how that can be made to happen comes through this educational mechanism. I mean, Johan and Baru, all of us have talked about this people's university idea that that there has to be an alternative to to the the establishment educational system, which is extraordinarily corrosive and and essentially not about education at all. It's quite the opposite. Okay, final thoughts from everybody. Yeah, one thing was about this hand sanitizer business, which kind of clicked the light on my head in 2020 was all the hand sanitizers are antibacterial. They're not antivirals. <laughs> so right. it, was, it, it was absurd, the kind of obsession people had for two years yeah. about hand sanitizers. Yeah. To watch that happen was unbelievable. And I think- well, What are goes... you, some kind of anti-vaxxer or something? Picky, picky, picky. <laughs> Bacteria viral, just just wash your fucking hands, would you? Yeah. <laughs> oh 
it was it, but it's also because of what you were saying just now is how education kind of molds the brain right like how the current education system molds the brain it's very directly linked to instructive thinking like so you instruct yeah. to do something and you do it and that's it that's the end of story so the establishment well, has kind of reproducing a ideology it's that it's that cycle right this is yeah. the thing i read from jonathan bell that's yeah. the important thing to remember that's, and that's a very reductive take on it but yeah, that's what's important to remember and that that we are in we are not outside of any of this we are no. we are in in the heart of the beast and no. you are constantly trying to gauge that uh and it's not easy and it, it wears one out it gets it's tiring this shit okay last thoughts Corey. no johan <laughs> i can give you a quote as, as per usual uh great a party member lives from birth to death under the eye of the thought police even when he is alone he can never be sure that he is alone wherever he may be asleep or awake, working or resting in his bath or in bed, he can be inspected without warning and without knowing that he is being inspected. Nothing that he does is indifferent, his friendships, his relaxations, his behavior towards his wife and children, the expression on his face when he is alone, the word he mutters to sleep, even the characteristic movements of his body are all jealously scrutinized. Not only any actual misdemeanor, but any eccentricity, however small, any change of habits, any nervous mannerism that could possibly be the symptom of an inner struggle is certain to be detected. He has no freedom of choice in any direction, whatever. On the other hand, his actions are not regulated by law or by any clearly formulated code of behavior. In Oceania, there is no law. Thoughts and actions which, when detected, mean certain death are not formally forbidden, and the endless purges, arrests, tortures, imprisonments, and vaporizations are not inflicted as punishment for crimes which are merely the wiping out of persons who might perhaps commit a crime at some time in the future. Great, who's that? I mean, That's from 1984. That's 1984, yeah. yeah. Oceana was a kind of a, a clue. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Hiroyuki? I think that there's a sense of uh, beauty and elegance in seeing through all those um, uh contradictions and uh I, I think uh not being able to do that is i think directly connected to uh lack of or understanding of um uh valuing uh elegance and beauty in things and uh, so from that perspective um um i think you know it makes sense that uh the podcast is titled Aesthetic Resistance, and um, um, this is very hard to uh, explain and describe, but this is something I always felt when I um, think about the bigger picture and the little things that are going on, um, there is a uh, sense of resolution and sense of um, something that's connected to be, being human and uh, um yeah you know what well, i mean well i'm gonna i'm gonna end with a very brief quote it's not even a quote per se uh there was a conversation robert bly 
the poet Gary Snyder and somebody else, and I forget who it may have been, uh, I don't know, Galway Canal or somebody. Anyway, and it was at a university and a student raised his hand and said to Gary Snyder, what can I do to become a poet? What should I do to become a better mm -hmm. poet? And Snyder said, go learn some, how to do something really well that isn't poetry. Go learn carpentry, but get really good at it. And once you're really good, come back and study poetry. I think I'm, that's a profound comment. And, and that's what I will conclude with today. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Hiroyuki, Johan, Corey, and Varun, like always, and in Los Angeles, the inimitable mm. Jack Littman. Uh, like thank Jack. you, Jack. And uh, to everybody who writes in and tells us they're listening, that's really cool. Thank you, everyone. I will see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.